This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Football was a big trigger for me. Being on the field, getting to the games on Sunday, that's when I could unleash and let the beast out and then go out there and, and do my job. It was after the game, the come down, the decompression. Our job is a high-stress job. You have to transform. You have to be able to turn it on to a whole new level. I knew something was wrong with me. I knew something was a little off. And that fear of feeling like, okay, if I do turn it on, I'm going to have another manic episode. Former Minnesota Vikings defensive end, Everson Griffin, was a powerhouse on the field. Nicknamed The Freak, the four-time Pro Bowler was a hard hitter known for bringing fire to the defensive line. But to many NFL fans in recent years, Everson's name has become synonymous with something else. On November 21st, 2021, he posted a series of videos to Instagram. He had a gun in his home, and he believed there were people there to attack him. The questions surrounding his erratic behavior led him to reveal for the first time that he has bipolar disorder. By sharing his story, Everson wants to take an active role in encouraging treatment and overcoming the stigma associated with bipolar. I want Corey to dig in in a minute on your early sports life, but I just wanted to ask you, because I know that you were recently, fairly recently, diagnosed with bipolar disorder. One of the big challenges with disorders like bipolar is that people don't get it. All they know is, I don't want to have that. That seems scary. I'm not sure what happened. And and it, it, it puts a barrier between people. Yeah, I think, I think people are scared too as well. People are scared of me and of the situation. And they really don't understand bipolar, like, like you said. But at the end of the day, I just feel like people are scared. That is why we're doing this exactly is because bipolar means one thing to most people mm-hmm. and it's it's complicated. There, there's different kinds of bipolar and, you know, we, especially now, people make the assumption that everyone who has a mental illness is dangerous and that's just simply not the case. They're, they're often dangerous, but it's usually dangerous to themselves, not to others because they're afraid and sometimes they're very sad. So I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk to us about this because it is, it's going to have a big impact if, when we can talk about something as specific as bipolar. What people got to understand when you're bipolar, you have your highs and lows. So when I'm at my high, you know, I'm very energetic. You know, I'm very, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's get out the house. Let's go on our boat. Let's go fishing. Let's go, let's go work on sports. Let's let's do it all. But when I'm at my low, depressed, you know, it's kind of hard to get out of bed. You just want to sleep all day. You want to chill out. You want to watch a show. You just want to lay in bed. You just you really don't want to deal with anybody, you know, and you don't want to see anybody. That's like my day to day at home. Yeah. When I'm low, it's just that's why I take my medication. So I make sure that I stay try to stay in even even killed all the time. Everson, 
Usually when we start these discussions, because I just can't stop my brain being patterned to start at the beginning, I usually ask people about growing up, what it was like growing up in your house, a little bit about your family or your, your early life experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I grew up in Avondale, Arizona. I have one older brother. His name is Charles Griffin. My mom's name was Sabrina Scott. My name was Charles Griffin. Growing up in my household was, it was chaotic at times. We seen stuff that we shouldn't seen. But at the end of the day, we had a, I would say it was a hard childhood. Um, You know, my mom, she was a single parent there for a little bit. And when we finally met my stepdad, things got a lot better. My mom, she was beat a little bit. You know, I had behavioral issues throughout my childhood. Always ended up in the principal's office or, you know, yelling at a teacher or something because that's what I seen at home. It was hard. It was hard at times. Um, and But it was it was great at times, too. My outlet was sports, baseball, basketball, playing outside with friends, you know, riding bikes, doing stuff like that. So that's pretty much in a nutshell that stuff that we shouldn't seen, you know, growing up. Can you tell me about that, Everson, when you say we saw stuff we shouldn't have seen? Can you give us some understanding of that? Like I said, my dad, my dad used to put hands on my mom. He used to hit my mom a little bit. So growing up seeing that, my dad also was a drug dealer. So when growing up having what you want to say, crackheads or people that abuse drugs come knock at your front door, you had to be aware of your surroundings and your situations. Just being able to identify the people that were who they were and people that weren't, that shouldn't have been at your front doorstep. It was different. It was challenging. And but we made it through the the other side. When you talk about behavioral issues, it sounds like you're putting a lot of that on yourself. Can you talk a little bit about what those behavioral issues were? Because I'd like to understand them. And I'm guessing that, yeah, there was a lot of chaos at home, but that there was probably other things going on, too. Talk a little bit about those behavioral issues as you remember them as a kid. My behavior issues as a kid was fights, fights, um, cursing at teachers, not being able to go on field trips at all because I violated no rule. So I wasn't able to go on field trips like that at all. You know, I was always in ISS, in school suspension at the middle school, doing like writing papers and doing stuff like I will not do this. I will not do that. You know, just stuff like that. I was really involved with the Boys and Girls Club growing up, too. So I was always getting in trouble there as well, too. And um, I had to spend weeks at times at home because I violated rules there. And I just had to write 5,000 times, I will not fight. I will not curse. Different things like that to be able to come back and participate in activities that they had planned for us there. So who put you into football? Who, how did you get involved in football first? I lived in Phoenix for quite a while. I know it's a massive football town. Like, it's you grow up playing football. I played flag football growing up, and then once, once it was time for me to play tackle football, I, I, I was a heavier kid, so I was a lot heavier. I'm a thicker kid, so I had to play up. Were you always the best? Yeah, I was always the best. Yeah, I was always the yeah. best growing up at the sports, baseball. Baseball was my first love. 
because that's what I played mostly in baseball and basketball. That's what I played mostly because I wasn't playing football. I wasn't playing tackle football like my other friends. I was just playing baseball and football. So baseball was my first love. When I played sport, that's where I felt best. That's just where I felt safe. And is that when you got, whether it was track or anything like that, is that where you felt the safest as, as soon as you were playing sport and that's where your love was? Oh, 100%. That's where that's where my heart and my soul, that, that was my passion. You know, anytime I got to showcase my abilities to my teammates, to coaches, to whoever that was out there, that's where I thrived at. So when I was able to do that, that's where... That's where the love of the game came from, you know, the love of the game. I love putting on my baseball cleats. I love putting on my my jersey, my basketball jersey. You know, that was just the love of the game. And then when football started, putting on them shoulder pads for the first time and going out there and running and cutting and things that I never really did before, then that's where, you know, I fell in love with football. Now, Griff, was the NFL, was that always your goal growing up? Yeah. Like, I always dreamed of just of, – of, the Stanley Cup and the NHL, was that always the goal for you was to play in the NFL? If my mom was alive today, she would tell you when I probably was like seven years old, I was there with football on the TV. She told me this story, seven years old, and I was watching football, and I told her, Mom, I'm going to do this one day. I'm going to play football one day. Like, this is what I'm going to do. She was like, all right, but yeah, so... I think sports, I think I was going to do something in sports regardless of the fact so when you look back, when was the first time that you reflect on, yeah, maybe I, I was struggling there. Maybe I had some some challenges with my mental health. When was the earliest you remember that? Probably college. You know, we really didn't have the resources and the funds like that to go see psychiatrists and therapists like that when I was growing up. But I know I suffer from ADHD for sure. You know, in my high school years, maybe, you know, I did a lot of drinking. I did a lot of drinking, you know, did a lot of smoking. I did a lot of partying. So maybe I was trying to suppress those feelings at a young age, too, as well. Actually, you know, at a young age, now, see, now that I'm thinking about it, at a young age, I started, my first time ever smoking marijuana was in the fifth grade. Maybe even back then, I was trying to find solutions to mask my feelings, college, it was the same thing. Often when I talk to someone who's had a diagnosis of bipolar, they start to experience symptoms, and usually it's depression, sadness. But guys, young guys, experience depression often with anger. Uh, it looks different than just being sad. But you said, really, I don't remember that till college. And, and I'm wondering what you were referring to. What do you remember from college? I just got arrested. I got arrested a few times in college for fighting. I don't know. I had anger problems. I I used to fight with the coaches. That was one of my things. I used to fight with whoever, whatever I did in my childhood, cursing out the teachers or fighting with the teachers. It kind of carried over into, into my sports too as well. Fighting with my coaches, not listening very well still doing my job good, but they just couldn't tell me anything because I knew I was the best at what I was doing. So I used to fight with my coaches a lot. I used to have a lot of conversations with my coaches, yelling at my coaches. We used to have, we used to go back and back, yelling at each other, fighting, yelling at each other. So maybe that was the anger part that was coming out. Who was the most 
positive influence in your young life when you think back to those really early years? I would have to say my mom. You know, my mom, she was a soldier. She she fought through all that. You know, she fought through, you know, the pain, the the the, the hard times, you know, the abuse, the up and downs, you know, dealing with two grown boys, trying to put food on the table. Just seeing her work ethic and seeing how she maintained, trying to maintain a positive outlook on life, it would have to be my mom. I wanted to ask you, because I know you're hurting right now because you've lost your stepdad recently, but you also lost your mom several years ago. And I know you described her as, you know, really your rock, strong, learning your, your work ethic. How did losing her affect you? I think, honestly, when, when when I lost my mom, I felt like, I'm not going to say, I probably had bipolar for a while, but I felt like that's when it increased. If it could increase or it could take a stronghold or anything like that, I felt like when I lost my mom, that's when everything kind of hit the fan. I couldn't smoke weed. If I smoked weed, I got mad. If I drank, I got mad. If I did cocaine, I got mad. Everything I did, I was mad. And that was years after, too. That's years and years and years after her passing, where no matter what I did, if I drank, I got mad. No matter the situation that I was in, you know, I was just mad. But when losing my mom, that tore me to my core. It impacted me so much. She was like, she was my rock. She was was a person that I think kind of got me that understood me because growing up, she never missed a sporting event, no matter what, no matter what I was doing, basketball, football, baseball, she never missed a sporting event ever in her whole life. So she was a person that who actually got me. So losing her, it impacted me to the core of my body. And that's when stuff got worse for me. She sounds like such an incredibly brave and strong woman, especially everything that she went through in your early life by being physically abused. So it's not uncommon for a big loss like that to really trigger someone who has that vulnerability for bipolar. I know that you had a couple of situations that happened that you ended up being hospitalized. The first time, it sounded like you went to what I assume was an addiction center, and the second time, you were actually in a hospital and you were diagnosed with bipolar. Is that right? Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar the first time, too. The first time you were as well, okay. Yes. So maybe let's take it from that direction and ask, what did the diagnosis of bipolar mean? mean to you? What what were they looking at, the kind of symptoms you were experiencing that they came to you and said, okay, this means you have bipolar? Just, I would like kind of like grandiose ideas, like racing thoughts, like just being manic, thinking that I'm bigger than the world, you know, trying to come up with a plan, you know, thinking that I'm bigger than the world type of mentality. And then they all led true and it all was true. So that grandiose ideas is a a good way of describing it. Did you think, I'm God, I'm Jesus, or I'm smarter than everyone else? What was your grandiosity? I didn't think I was Jesus or God, but I think that I was smarter than everybody else, that I had my plan that I devised in my head was better than everybody else's, that everybody else, they were going to jump on board and they were going to be able to see how smart I was and that, you know, no matter what I do, 
you know, I'm untouchable. I just thought that I was untouchable, that no matter what was going on, I was untouchable at the time. Did anyone at the time when you look back, did you think anyone was trying to hurt you or to get you? Oh, yeah. I thought I thought that a lot. I thought that a lot of times that people were trying to plan to get me, that people were out to get me, that, you know, I wasn't safe. That's why I stayed like in hotel rooms that had like good security and stuff like that, because I thought that people were out to get me. That sounds very scary. Mm -hmm. Can you remember how you felt at that time as far as? I just felt lost. I felt like I didn't know where to go. Like, where do I go? What do I do next? Like, it got to that tipping point where I just lost control. There was no self-control anymore. It was me rolling on the ground or me yelling out loud in the hotel. And they try to say I had a gun. I never had a gun. You know, I never had a gun. Not until this last episode when I finally got guns, but I never had a gun on my first episode. But I was rolling on the ground, yelling, screaming. I was just completely out of control. I was smoking marijuana. It just got out of control. I erupted. Your story is really compelling, and not many people talk about their journey in bipolar disorder. They don't talk about what it's like to be high. And I wondered if you'd take a minute just to walk me through how the episode that the last episode in 2021 that sounded like it was quite severe. Can you talk about, you don't have to talk about every detail of it, but more than just the the journey into it. What do you remember about how it started to happen and then led to you being, you know, in these hotel rooms, the gun, the whole thing? You know, I was doing drugs again and I felt like somebody was out to get me. I just felt odd about something. And it's and it's right when I started smoking. I felt odd and, you know, I... I'm driving my car. I'm just driving my car home, movie from me and the family, and I'm just smoking, smoking. And I get home, and I just feel different. So I feel like somebody's coming to get me, so I go grab my gun. And when I do that, I hear the door in my room creep open, and I go to it, and... When I turned back around to get in bed, I felt like somebody bumped my hand and shot the gun because the way I was turning, there's no way I could shoot the gun, but I felt like somebody bumped the gun and shot the gun. And so I got the gun and I shot it twice at the bed because that's where I felt like it came from. And I was in the room by myself. People said that I was like, it was like a standoff. It really was no standoff. I was just, I was waiting till the sunlight came up because they kept on telling me to come outside, to come outside. It'd be all right. And from what we've seen in our, in our world, that it doesn't really matter what color you are, but if a black man is out with a gun in the dark, you can't see me. I'm a dark black man. I'm not super dark, but I'm dark enough. I'm a black man with a gun. And I walk out there, They, if I walk out there with, with no gun in my hand or without a gun, so I just laid on the ground until there was sunlight out. And once there was sunlight out, I came in the kitchen, I ate some food, and then I walked down there to the path and they took me to the hospital. So you, despite the fact that you thought people are out to get you, you're at risk, you're shooting your gun, 
is terrifying situation. And at the same time, you're thinking, I'm a black guy, there's police outside. So there's that bit of rationality, which I think is very rational in your situation to think this is not safe. So you just sort of went to the ground. Yeah, I went to the ground in my room and I was on the ground in my room for seven hours, maybe not seven, six hours. I don't know. I just laid on the ground for six hours waiting for the sunlight come up. So, Diane, I think this is the first time we've talked about bipolar on the show. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about it. For people who don't know, what is bipolar? Bipolar disorder is actually not just one thing, but it's a spectrum of mood symptoms that people experience. And most people, when they think about bipolar, they think about bipolar 1 disorder. But there's actually bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and then what I call soft bipolar. They don't meet the full criteria for 1 or for 2, but they have these common threads of bipolarity, which means that they have unstable mood and it impacts their functioning and their quality of life. So bipolar 1 disorder, the only thing that is required to meet the criteria for that diagnosis is actually to have a manic episode. A manic episode is when you've got way too much energy, you don't need to sleep, your thoughts are going very quickly, and your belief system can change. You think you're smarter, you're sexier, you're funnier, you have more money. Also, when you're manic, there's two important factors that that go into that diagnosis. People are often psychotic, which means they have false beliefs that put themselves at risk to themselves or to others. And often those are thoughts, because you're manic, you're high, you think you're smarter and sexier and funnier and more special, they often are aligned with that. It's called egocentric. It fits with your mood. So having messianic delusions, I'm God, I'm Jesus, I'm the Holy Spirit, I'm someone who's very, very famous, even though you're not famous. So those are grandiose delusions that you're someone that you're not. Bipolar 2 disorder requires that you have hypomanic episodes. You can never have had a manic episode, but you got to have hypomanic episodes. And what that means is that you do think you're smarter and sexier and funnier and you've got more money, but not so much so that you actually put yourself or others at risk. It's not as dangerous. It's not severe. You don't require hospitalization, but it still has an important impact on your life. The other part of bipolar 2 is that you have to have depressive episodes. You don't even have to be depressed to meet the criteria for bipolar 1, but you must for bipolar 2. And the sad reality of bipolar is that most people who have that diagnosis spend the vast majority of their time depressed, not feeling up or high or smart or sexy, in fact, meeting the criteria for depressed. And if you look at the lifespan of someone who has a bipolar diagnosis, most spend more than half their life with depressive symptoms. So when in a person's life would be a typical time when bipolar might present itself? Most of the time when the presentation of bipolar becomes clear is actually in the teen years. Most serious mental illnesses make themselves known in the teen years. It doesn't mean that you don't pop out of the womb with some symptoms, right? You may have some anxiety, a little bit of social anxiety or generalized symptoms of anxiety, maybe ADHD earlier in life. But those mood symptoms tend to make themselves really clearly known in the teen years. But how do they present? 
as depression. And of course, because a kid won't have manic or hypomanic episodes often until they're in their teens, they may never have them, but the most common presentation for bipolar is the first several episodes to be depressed, and it's not until later in life that you first see those manic or hypomanic symptoms. And if you look depressed and you're anxious, you get treated like you're depressed, and the wrong treatment, treating someone who has bipolar as if they have depression, can provoke worsening symptoms, make you have really terrible side effects, and lead people to lose faith in the healthcare system. Well, you've always told me that genetics only play a small role, though, but it is something to look at historically, that it is possible for it to be with somebody from, if you're bipolar or OCD, typically there's somebody in the past that's that's had it. But is it all genetics, or is it is there other things involved that contribute to it as well? It's a great question. Bipolar disorder is our most heritable psychiatric illness. And there's another that is close in heritability, and that's ADHD. So those are our two most heritable psychiatric illnesses, and they ride together far more often than you would expect. So adult ADHD happens in 4 to 5% of the adult population. It's 20 to 30% in people who have bipolar. And it's bi-directional. You've got bipolar, you've got a greater risk of ADHD. You've got ADHD, you've got a greater risk of bipolar. So they ride together more frequently than you would expect and are two most heritable psychiatric illnesses. That said, and, and coming back to Everson, talking about the fact that there were some triggers for episodes. So he had the risk, probably a genetic risk there, but then there were specific triggers for him. He talked about the loss of his mom and he talked about using cannabis, those two being triggers for episodes, and they're two perfect examples of common triggers. One is a deeply emotional social trigger, the loss of someone that you really care about, a big job loss, a big financial hit, something really emotional, something that means a lot to you. And the other thing is is THC. So cannabis comes in two parts, right? There's the THC and the CBD. The THC is the part that gives you the high, and it's also the part that has very clear evidence about, in a vulnerable brain, being able to trigger the onset of psychotic symptoms. So uh, mania, schizophrenia, as well as destabilizing the mood and making it harder to recover from bipolar or anxiety. What are some of the misconceptions about bipolar? I've heard people say they're people are violent, they're crazy, they're this, they're that. There's there's so many stigmas to bipolar, and I've fallen into believing them as well. And it's not fair because I don't think that's true. And I, I guess you can tell us more about that and what the misconceptions would be out there with the public. Well, I think there are many. One is what we've already spoken about. The fact is there's more than one kind of bipolar. And we all tend to think about bipolar 1, but actually it's more common for people to have bipolar 2 or the softer side of bipolar where they have the unstable mood but don't have those full manic episodes. It's so important to make that diagnosis and differentiate those different kinds of bipolar because of the fact that they're treated differently. The other thing is that most people think about bipolar as being all about mania. And of course, because there's different kinds of bipolar, there's different presentations. But most people do not spend any time on the high end. That's a very short period of time. Most of the time they spend depressed. 
And the other thing, which again was so important for Everson's story, was this belief that if you have bipolar, you're inherently violent. And in fact, that is not the case. Although there's a very high risk of suicide associated with bipolar disorder. And so that's turning that risk of violence actually against yourself. So we have to be aware of the fact that when people are manic or very, very depressed, there is a risk of them behaving in a way that they wouldn't normally, especially when you're manic, that's part of the diagnosis, and why they need to be hospitalized often during that phase. But this idea of some kind of inherent violence, that is not a a major aspect of bipolar disorder. So if you're a spouse or somebody, how do you recognize that that might be something that your partner or somebody might have? Usually it's somebody else that sees it in you, and the person that it's happening to doesn't even really recognize that it's happening. It's a really tough diagnosis to make, actually, and that's because most people who have bipolar spend most of their life depressed. And if you go into your family doctor, where most people get their health care, you go and see a family doctor, most of the time you're presenting as depressed when you have bipolar disorder. If I'm feeling smarter or sexier or funnier, I'm not going to a family doctor. I'm thinking they're coming to me, right? I'm the person who's in charge here. So when people go and seek help, it's usually when they're depressed. And if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. They see depression and they think you're depressed. The problem is if you miss that bipolar diagnosis. If all you see is depression and the clinician approaches it as if it's just depression, that means the treatment is wrong because depression and bipolar are treated differently. So when somebody's manic or in that mania stage, they're probably not going to listen. They think, oh, perfect. I'm doing awesome. When would be the best time to try to talk to somebody into getting help? And you're not going to be able to recognize that it's bipolar as a family member, as a friend. You're not qualified to. But when would be the best time to talk to somebody about possibly getting treatment because you see something? The most important risk factor for bipolar disorder is family history, number one. Now, most people don't have a family history of bipolar disorder that they called bipolar disorder. So what I'm looking for when I'm looking for family history is loved ones who have spent a lot of time depressed, been institutionalized, spent time in hospital for depression or anxiety symptoms, lots of substance abuse, a chaotic home environment. That's what I'm looking for because no one says, oh yeah, granny was bipolar, but they may say, yeah, granny spent a lot of time in hospital, a lot of time depressed, had times when people wondered whether she had schizophrenia. Those kind of stories that always get my spidey sense going, maybe this is the family history of bipolar. It's also critical, we as psychiatrists, as physicians in general, fail to recognize the critical nature of collateral information, of of loved ones, of family members, of friends that the patient feels really comfortable with who can help to give information to make sure we have the right diagnosis. That's twofold. Helps me to make the right diagnosis and also helps that individual to feel confident that I'm I care about their loved one, that my focus is on getting them better, picking the right treatment. And if you're only hearing one side, the patient goes home and says, she gave me a prescription, family members are going, oh, who's this woman? What's she up to? So trying to involve loved ones, it's important for collateral, and it's also important for building a whole therapeutic alliance. I don't want to be calling a mom while someone's 
suicidal and standing on a rooftop or asking my patient at the time when they're suicidal, can I call your mom, especially if they're manic, they're not able to um, think clearly, then is not the time to ask permission, can I give your mom a call? It's the time when they're feeling well, when they're euthymic, when they're more able to communicate effectively. That's the time to get permission. If you're not doing well, who can I call? Who can I reach out to to give you support? Thank you so much for sharing that. You don't know how much this is going to help so many people out there that... And I think there's a lot more athletes out there that have things that we're trying to get to come forward. But as far as your teammates go, did any teammates try and help you? Or was there anybody that had come and, and noticed that maybe something was off or tried to try to be there for you and help you? Maybe they tried, but I just didn't let them in. They could try, but you have to be able to, I got to be able to receive that message well and be able to allow somebody to, you got to allow somebody to help you, you know, and I probably didn't allow them to help me during that time. It's fascinating when you do come forward with your stuff. And as far as the NFL family or NHL family, like it's when they don't know what's going on, it's hard for them to, you know, try. Everyone makes their own opinions and, and, and what type of person you are. But then when you come forward with your you know, with your stuff or your, you know, you're into a, a treatment facility. It's amazing how teammates will rally around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, so for me, it was when I came up with my story, it was almost like all of a sudden everybody understood why I was like that. And the love and support that I got from my people and my family was was incredible. Did you find that once now everything that everything's kind of out there for you that you're getting that love and support from everybody and just, even your old teammates are, are coming forward to talk and try and help with. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm getting some love and support. You know, um, it's not it's not crazy amounts of love and support to be honest, but there is some love and support out there that people are giving me, and I do see it that people that try could it be more? Yes, but at the end of the day, I'm not in charge of of them. I'm not in charge of if they want to reach out to me and talk to me about it and, you know, figure out whatever they need to figure out what's on their hearts as well. I guess, I guess there there, there was, there, there is some love and support out there. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes the coaches don't want to upset the apple cart, right? Like they, they, they know there's something off, but you're playing so well, you kind of, I wouldn't say you get away with a little bit more or whatever, but they don't want to upset because they want the team to win. How do we teach that, you know, humanity and mental health and helping people over a win, right? Like over, that should be first and foremost. And it would have made you a better player, but everybody's afraid to say something. The coaches are afraid to say something, but they also don't want, you to change any because they want to win. How much of a difference would that have made in your life? Maybe if a college coach did try to to come to you and and did try to help and, you know, it was more about you than the team. I think it would have made a big difference. Just maybe getting that help earlier in my life, getting some testing done, you know, getting tests for ADHD, getting tested. I, I think it would have made a big difference just starting there, starting somewhere 
I would have been more aware of what's what's actually going on with me on a daily basis and more and and I think it would have helped me a lot more. It would have given me a lot more awareness. I'm sure sometimes someone characterized the symptoms that you had where you believed you were better than everyone else and you're spending money when you were high. It sounds like you had psychotic symptoms, right? False beliefs that that but you believe them 100%. That's that's what bipolar does to your brain when you're high is make you have these false beliefs. Sometimes those scare people. A lot of the time they scare people, not just the person who's having them, but the people around them that work with them, live with them, care about them. As a football player, you're trying to deal with all this. Did having these symptoms affect your ability to play the game? No, it really didn't. You know, because our job is a high-stress job. You know, you got to come in and you have to produce. That's what people don't get. People think that sports is all about fun and 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 it's fun don't get me wrong it's fun but you have to produce if you don't produce then you're not going to have a job so producing is the number one is the number one key to having a job in NHL football baseball it's producing but producing for me it was fun it was fun being on the field getting to the games on Sunday that's when I could unleash and let the beast out and then go out there and and do my job. It was after the game, the the come down, the decompression of, all right, it'll take me a few days to just come down after the game, each and every game. And I couldn't imagine playing, what, how many games you guys played in the NHL? 60? Uh, 80, 82. 82. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine playing 82 games and have to come down and be right back at it the next day or so, but just just to come down off of playing, you know, a football game at that high of a level, you trying to and trying to play polished football, um, it, it was hard. And you know, the day to day going into the locker room, going into the classroom because you still got to study and doing all that. That was the hard part of it. The fun part was playing football. I'm looking at your accomplishments being and being undiagnosed, like. It's incredible what you what you've done as a as an athlete. It really is. I mean, the awards, you know, well, everything you've done, and you were a dynamite player. Now that you're diagnosed and um, you know, and on meds, I always felt after I got diagnosed and on meds, I would have I was an even better player, right? And I felt like I didn't get the opportunity afterwards as much. But do you, now that you're on medication and that you're diagnosed, do you feel that you could be even a better player now? Um, and is it, is it help you? I, I, have a, I get a lot of questions from kids in that. They're, they're concerned about medications because they're concerned it's going to affect their play. And for me, I'm like, you'll be a better player because you'll be able to study more. You'll be able to watch film more. You'll be able to do things on the field that, you know, or, or on on the ice or whatever that you weren't able to do because you weren't you weren't essentially well. Now, do you find that that you can you would be even a better player today now that you're medicated and diagnosed? I will say yeah to a certain degree because I want to have that fear. I knew something was wrong with me. I knew something was a little off, and this not having that fear of having a big manic episode like that on game day, you know, you you have to transform. You have to have that alter ego 
you have to be able to turn turn it on to a whole new level. So to be able to do that, it's really amazing to see when you see all the players that turn it on and do that. What were you talking about? Will that make you a better player? I think it would. I think it would because I wouldn't have the worries of, you know, feeling like, okay, if I do turn it on, if I do turn it on, then I'm going to have another episode because football was a big um, trigger for me and I was able still to play it. Who's your favorite player growing up? Who did you want? Who did you emulate yourself after? Who did you want to be? Emmitt Smith, because I was a running back. And Dallas Cowboys was my favorite team growing up. So Emmitt Smith, and then it was Barry, and then um, Marshall Falk, and all them guys. But I do want to ask you about your first NFL touchdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't got to that. What? Uh, tell me the play and what it, that was like to you. I always ask guys, what was your first NHL goal like? What was that? Nobody ever asked me what it was like the first time I ever got scored on as a goalie, but I yeah. guess that's not, uh, that's a whole nother mm-hmm. realm. But I want to know who you were playing with. Tell me the play and your first NFL touchdown and what that was like. Sam Bradford, we were playing the Rams down in St. Louis. Sam Bradford, I was dropping off number three. So I was dropping like, I was dropping like white off number three. Number three ran a slant route right in front of me. I had the corner right over top of me. He ran a slant route. Sam, he didn't see me. Boom, I picked it off and took it to the house for six. Uh, do you still have the football too? I'm sure yeah, you do. Yeah, 100% I do. Somewhere in here. That is so cool. I, I love that. That must have, yeah. what was that? What did that feel like? When you, are, are you, oh my are you guy that celebrated or were you just kind of like? No, I celebrated. I did my little, <laughs> I did my little sack daddy dance that I made up. <laughs> It was fun, man. Just seeing all the guys around me screaming, yelling, it was a lot of fun. You did bring up the fact that you've had these depression times, these down times. Do they happen before you go high or do they follow after you go high or do they just come out of the blue? No, there's not really gauging it. Just I can be feeling good and all of a sudden, a few days, few months, then I could just go into a deep, dark place. I don't want to be around nobody, but like I said, that's why I stay on my meds and and do that on a, on a daily basis. How do you talk to people about your meds? And first of all, thank you for yes. talking positively <laughs> about you. medication, which is, is what I do, but people have this fear of them, and sometimes not everyone needs them, but sometimes, and especially with bipolar disorder, people require medication. What has it been like to be on medication and listening to people around you talking about them, I'm assuming, like most people, you hear a lot of negativity. How do you react to that? I would say uh, people who's talking negativity about medication, they, they're just not educated enough. And you're not dealing with the right psychiatrist because there's, there's not, every psychiatrist ain't good. You know, every psychiatrist isn't good. You know, I, I, I have my fair share of some, but now the lady that I use, She's amazing. And medication has done wonders for me. It keeps me level. It keeps me, it keeps me from knowing that, you know, I'm protected and I'm protecting myself from having another manic episode. You know, that's the last thing I want to do is have another manic episode because they they only keep on getting worse. They're not getting better. They they keep on getting worse. So whatever I have to do to make sure that I stay healthy and that my family stays healthy and that the people around me stay healthy, 
is take my medication. And that's what I do on a daily basis. It's always hard to talk about your profession in a negative way. And I know we've identified the fact that there's a lot of crappy psychiatrists out there. I just wonder if you could just speak for a moment about maybe a negative experience. And because a lot of people, when they've had a bad experience, that's it. Yeah, they, they quit. They, they quit. And I understand why, because they're putting all their hope in someone and then they, they get let down. Do you remember having that experience where you felt like I'm done and this isn't working and how it turned around? Yeah, I was on, um, um, it was my first episode and the psychiatrist had me on like maybe 3,000 milligrams of Depakote. It was way too much. And I, that's when I was going back to play football. So it just suppressed my feelings. I couldn't feel, feel. I couldn't feel nothing. I was like, that's a blob. And I told him that I need to adjust. Something's not right. And he's like, oh, no, you said that it's working for you very well. I said it was working for me very well when I was at my highest, when I was at the highest of my high. Yeah, I need 3,000 milligrams of Depakote when I'm at, when I'm manic through the roof. Yeah, that's when I need that. But now I need, we need to figure out a different um, regimen, a different, some different pills. And he still didn't listen. So I just quit him. I just had to quit because, you know, without him, without him signing the prescription or sending in the prescription, I had no other spot to get them from. So I just quit the pills and I wish I wouldn't have quit the pills, but. And how is the new one different? Yeah, I'm just myself. It's just like my normal self. Like you just think that when you wake up, this vision, this vision, your best self. And that's what I, I am every day, just ever since. So you can be you with this psychiatrist. You can tell her this isn't working and she listens and responds mm -hmm. and you work together to find the right path ahead. Or, yeah, or, hey, I'm feeling a little down. Can we adjust something? Or, you know, you know I'm feeling a little up. Maybe we could cut back something and she goes through it and I go in, I get my levels checked, make sure my levels are right. And if my level's not right, then she readjusts my meds and that's how we go about it. This is the thing that I think a good doctor and a good psychiatrist, they are the navigators, but you're the captain of your ship. And you need to feel like you can turn to your navigator and say, where do I go next? What's the next step? And work together. But it's your body. It's your brain. It's your life. And you need to feel like you've got control over that because it's the only life you can control is your own. 100%. You're 100% right. Yeah, you can't give up. Because if you give up, you're just shortchanging yourself. You know, giving up is not an option. Like, you, you have to go out there and you have to be willing and able to push through the redundant part of meeting a psychiatrist or meeting a therapist. Hi, my name is Everson. Yeah, this and this and that. You got you to gotta, you gotta be able to push through that part to be able to find the right person for yourself. So I would say anybody who's not on medication and needs to be on medication, just take that next step because it, it could be life changing. It could be one moment I could be sitting in my kitchen right now waiting for my wife and kids to come home or I can be in a treatment facility somewhere. You know, it's like I choose my life here. I choose my house every day of the week. I wanted to ask you how you met this magical being that is your wife who's gone through all this with you and loved you. And so where did you meet her? How did this happen? You've been together quite a while now. Yeah, we've been together going on 12 years. We met going into my second year in the NFL. 
we just kicked it off right from Jump Street. Um, we've been together ever since. We got we we just had our eighth um, anniversary this past January fifth. She's a soldier. She's a rider. She's she's everything you could think of. Like anybody that could withstand the test of bipolarness and you know losing losing a family member, losing their mom. I lost my mom when I was how old was I? So two thousand to ten years ago, twenty four years old. So I still I was a young man, you know. So losing my mom at twenty four years old and her being there for that, and you know her going through these episodes with me. She has a spot in heaven, let me tell you. I love that because a lot of some people get discouraged because they think if they have a mental health issue, well, how am I going to have a healthy relationship? How am, how am I ever going to have this and that? And you know what? It's you can. It's both people have to be open, honest, caring. Do you and your wife and your family have something like so? If they see you starting to slip, yeah, we have a crisis plan. Awesome. What what is that for? What does that look like? A, a crisis plan. A crisis plan is just people that phone numbers and places where where she could call and people that she could talk to to help her manage to catch it early instead of catching the late. So, you know, my psychiatrist, my therapist, marriage counselor or who, whoever, mom, dad, I mean, like her parents, and they have a set of calling 911. Now they have the people that you could call and, and they, they're like psychiatrists that come out and they're like crisis people that come out to your house. So just having a team of people that you're willing to work with and that, you know, you could count on during those times. Griff, I, I have a crisis plan. I, I have a anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD. It doesn't matter to me if you have bipolar or whatever. I think we all should have a crisis plan. We should all yeah. have people that are looking out for us. So I have, I have, if I start sliding and people don't hear from me for a couple of days, they know to text me. They know to call me. And mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that you said that because it's so important for us to all to have a crisis plan so that we're looking out for each other and know what to do when something starts going south for us a little bit. How do you guys talk about mental health in your home now with your kids? And how do you approach that with your children and your wife as a family, knowing what you've been through? We call it daddy just a little sick in his brain. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you keep an open dialogue with them about just the the overall umbrella of mental health? (laughs) Daddy's just the... I love it. I love it. Uh, If the topic comes up, then we, we address it, but... I don't know. I feel like we handle it in several different ways. We talk it through it. I think nowadays, like if something comes up, I think I'm just completely honest with them. There's no sugarcoating it. This is what it is. This is what happened. You know, because this day and age, they're going to be able to look it up and find out what happens anyways. You know, what's going on anyways on the Internet or something. So. So I'm just we just completely blunt with them about what is mental health, what daddy went through. What is he doing now to be able to, you know, maintain it and stuff like that? What about for them? And just not even about you, but just as a family, mental health is an overall so that they're aware for themselves that this is what I need to do to take care of my brain. This is what I need to do if something is going on. Oh, yeah. Staying active. We always tell them stay active. Um, if some, you know, talk to us about anything. If you feel in a certain type of way. One of our one of our children is getting he's getting a comprehension test done just to make sure 
he doesn't have it, you know what I'm saying? He doesn't like have ADHD or anything like that. You know, it's so common these days with kids. We have that planned and ready for him coming up here soon too. Corey, I thought it was great that you asked Everson about his crisis plan. Can you talk about what crisis plan is from your perspective and what you've done yourself to create one? Well, I know when I'm going into something, and it's difficult to pull myself out of it. So if I'm drinking too much or I'm sleeping too much or spinning, I need someone to tell me, because sometimes I can recognize it, other times I can't. And mental health, it takes a village of people. And it's important to have people around you that, hey, if I don't come out of my house for three days and I don't text you back and I don't call you back when you call me, well, something's happening. Something's happening with me. And I'll communicate that with other people so that they know, hey, you know, they can either come over to my house or invite me out or something or you know, just try and pull me out of that situation because they know that something's up. Or they'll be like, hey, you know, what's going on? I haven't heard from you in a few days. You're doing okay and you check in. So that's a crisis plan in a, in a way in that sense. Um, say I'm drinking too much or I'm, you know, someone notices that I'm drinking more than usual or or using or whatever cannabis. They can see that they recognize it and check in with me. What's going on? How are you doing? You doing okay? And I, there are people that I trust that they see something in me that they recognize that's different, that I might not even be recognizing at the time, or I just might want to put myself right into it because I'm feeling really crappy. So if I'm feeling really depressed, maybe I just want to isolate, which is one of the worst things you can do for depression. So my crisis group are people that recognize that, hey, I'm not getting back to them, or hey, you know, you've been out quite a bit this week or the last month. You know, is something, you know, do you want to talk about something? Like, tell me what's going on. So it's a group of people that recognize when I'm not myself, when I'm not acting, uh, you know, myself. And they help me to, to pull me out of it so that um, it doesn't get worse and it doesn't go to a place that it doesn't need to go to. I personally think everybody should have a crisis plan. I don't care if you have mental illness or not because we all fall into things. But who out there do you think should have a crisis plan? Who needs one? Well, I think you're right that we all have times when we need to reach out to someone that we trust, that we have confidence in the fact that we can talk to them in our little bubble, that we can keep it between ourselves, and that they're going to give us sage advice to help us to get back on track. And that's, I think we do that with friends or family members, people that we trust. The way you described those people that you reach out to when you feel like you're in crisis, but also who recognize, mm, I don't like this direction that Corey's going. And you have that level of trust so they can say, hey, are you okay? And that maybe triggers you, I need a little more help here. Gets you going and maybe reconnecting with a therapist, for instance. So to me, that's a normal, what friends do, or family members, people you trust can do. And it's important to to build that and for it to be bi-directional. You don't want to be a friend who's only taking. You want to also give that back to people as long as you're mentally well enough to do that. But a real crisis plan for someone who has mental illness, 
that's even more critical, I would say, because for someone like Everson, if he's starting to escalate, if his mood is changing, he needs to have a plan in place with a therapist, with a psychiatrist, within his family to say, this is what we're going to do. One of the best examples of that, I would say, for bipolar disorder is that if people are moving into a mania or hypomania, one of the first symptoms is often that they don't need sleep. And I teach my patients about recognizing that, sharing that with their family members, so that if you're not getting sleep and you don't feel tired, you don't feel like you need sleep, that is an immediate sign, we got to get you to sleep. And then we have a whole protocol in place, and the loved ones know about this too, or close friends know about this too, because the most important thing I can do for my patients is prevent those episodes. I don't want anyone to end up in hospital, end up spending all their money recklessly or harming relationships. So having those little trigger points that, you know, now I've got to call Dr. McIntosh or now I need to start this particular treatment that helps me to get to sleep quickly, those are really critical for people living with mental illness. When you have issues like myself or Everson, You really need people in your corner. You need them to stand by your side. You need them to show that they care. And there's only so much people can take, of course, and then you have to have to look after you. But I can't emphasize enough the importance of a loved one, someone that shows, hey, I'm trying to understand what you're going through. I'm trying to understand, and they might not, but they make the effort, and they love you, and they want to see the best. And they see underneath that you're not this horrible person or you're not this monster or you're not, um, you have a, an illness. You have something that's going on and that you need the help. I will say this too, though. I mean, there's a point where people have to take care of themselves and there's only so much a person can take. But his, his wife, to stick by, to understand and to try to understand that this is a man that underneath is a very kind, empathetic, wonderful person. He needs help. And if you can get him the proper help, you know, you you have that man. And she believed that. And, and I can't emphasize enough how important that is for somebody that feels the shame we do, the embarrassment, the guilt, that still loves us, that still wants to help us. Corey, I want to ask you about something that, again, never wishing to make people feel badly because they're not at this place in their own journey with their mental illness. You have been incredibly brave in talking openly about your illness. And for some people, they're just never going to get there. They're not comfortable, and that's okay. But that stigma, the guilt, and shame you talk about can be a real barrier to people feeling normal and reaching out to people who would give them support. It is hard to know whose business this is. Like, people want to hold it close. What helped you to come to the decision that you wanted to share with others? Well, there's lots of factors, but I met somebody else finally that had OCD the same as I did. And his mom had to resuscitate him twice from fentanyl overdoses. I never realized how deadly mental health can be undiagnosed, untreated. And it was at that point where I realized that I needed to get my story out there because that was 20 years after my diagnosis almost that I finally met the first person that actually was open to say they had OCD like mine. And that was what inspired me because I didn't realize, I thought I was alone. I I really did. I thought maybe there was a handful of people that had OCD. And now what I'm learning is OCD, most of my friends 
have either tried to take their own life, and some have been successful, Diane. And I don't want people to think that there's not a way out with OCD. So that's OCD. That's what I have. And I wanted people to feel like, as you say, there's a path ahead that, look, I played in the NHL, and I have a platform. If I don't use it for good, then, then I feel like shame on me. I do feel, though, as if you are struggling, you need to tell the people closest to you and the people you trust so that they know. And I can make people feel like it's them. I can be in a spin with my OCD, and I'm really not present in the conversation. I need to let them know that I'm kind of struggling at this point. It's not them. Because you can really alienate people and, and make them feel like it's their fault for something. They don't know what's going on. Communication is so important. But I really, the reason that I came forward with my stuff is because I realized that mental illness can be deadly, Diane, and we don't treat it that way. I think it was one of the many remarkable things about Everson was talking about a disorder that many people don't understand, that many people fear, but that he felt, despite the fact that he's clearly still struggling, dealing with a lot of challenges, that he was brave enough to speak up about it because of the platform of his elite athleticism, that he, he has this incredible platform and using it for such good. What do you want people to know out there about bipolar, what it was like for you, and what you would like to change about the stigma of having it? Bipolar, it's, it's what I have. It's not who I am. It's something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Like somebody who got diabetes, they got to make sure they get their insulin. Or somebody who got high blood pressure, they got to make sure they take the high blood pressure pills or anything like that, you know. I just want them, I just want people to know that bipolar ain't attached to violence. It ain't attached to attacking people. It's not attached to, it's not attached to all bad things. It's attached to just a disorder that you have and that, if a person is smart enough, they will listen to the psychiatrist, the therapist, and they will come up with a plan and they will have that plan and they will and they will stick to it. But bipolar is not dealt with. It's not about all bad things. People think, oh, he has bipolar. He has two personalities. I don't have two personalities. When I'm manic, I do, you know, but that don't mean I'm, I'm not out to hurt you. When somebody's manic, you can be very different. You can have very different outlook on life when you when you medicated and you're doing the right things and you're sticking to your guns. I'm Everson Griffin, born 1987. It doesn't change. That's who I am. That's who I've been. PlayersTribute.com